0: This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. On today's episode, I welcome another one of my favorite historians and authors, Leanda Delisle. Leanda and I talk about the Tudors, James I, and his son, Charles I. You just never know where these topics will lead, and I had an absolute blast discussing them with Leanda. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast and owner of Tudor'sDynasty.com. Telling the stories of those who lived centuries before us is what I enjoy doing most. Whether it be a show on one subject or an interview with an author or historian, I'll bring you the tales of 16th century England. Before I get started today, I need to take a minute to thank all the folks who became patrons since my last episode. Stephanie W., Alexandra O., Tiffany B., Brianna S., Avery, and Kathy D., as well as a shout-out to Kelly R. for increasing her pledge. And a thank you to all of my existing patrons as well. A full list of patrons can be found at tutorsdynastypodcast.com. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash tutorsdynasty and click Become a Patron. For as little as $1 per month, you can show your supports. Without further ado, Leanda DeLisle. Welcome to the show. Hello. I have followed you for quite a few years now, but for those who are listening who may be unfamiliar with your work, maybe you could give them just a brief bio.
1: Uh, right. Well, I, uh, I uh, read history at university, at Oxford University. Um, I then went into journalism for a number of years as a columnist for all sorts of uh, different uh, newspapers and magazines. Uh, And then for the last 20 years, really, um, I returned to history and I have been writing um, books about uh, the Tudors and the Stuarts. And you do a little TV as well, right? Uh, Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, I do um, television. um, I have a podcast. um, I do radio, um, all sorts of things. Yes. So um, and in fact, um, there's there's a new BBC series, which they're just making at the moment about the execution of Charles I and I think I'm being filmed for that on October the 23rd or whatever. So yes, there's always something going on. I was just gonna say you're quite busy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, definitely quite busy. I was I saw on Twitter someone saying that they were a writer they're looking forward to the weekend. I was, think, I was thinking really I wasn't aware writers had weekends.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're just constantly working and researching and preparing and it's quite the life, but I bet it's a lot of fun.
1: Yes, no, I, absolutely. Absolutely. Like all, like all sorts of, like all work, it, um, it, has, has it, has it has its ups and downs. But on the whole, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a good life.
0: Well, speaking of ups and downs, usually when I have guests on the show, I ask them this question, and it's one that's probably plagued centuries. Who is your favorite consort of Henry VIII and Why?
1: My favourite consort of Henry VIII is Catherine of Aragon. Um, And I like Catherine of Aragon because she was the only wife of whom he was really afraid. She was tough. I mean, her mother, Isabel of Castile, was, you know, the great warrior queen. And uh, she was very much her mother's daughter. And uh, he once said he was very concerned that he would lead armies, uh, she would lead armies against him. And indeed, in fact, she did, um, uh, she had been put in charge of his armies uh, when he was in France um, and uh, she was facing um, the King of Scots, James IV of Scots at Flodden, uh, where uh, James IV was killed. Um, and uh, she then wanted to send uh, James's head to uh to Henry uh, in France. Uh, but um, the English thought this was rather bad taste and asked her not to. Uh, and so she just sent his sort of bloodied clothes, uh, which arrived duly in France. Uh, and um, Henry sort of opened the package and uh, saw his fellow king's clothes all covered in blood and gore and torn. Um, and um was slightly shocked by it, actually, <laughs> a little foretaste of what his wife might do to him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And, and, you know, I've read in places before where he have, may have been a little bit jealous of her victory over his in France at the time. And I always wonder if that was really the case.
1: Well, I'm sure that, I'm sure he was obviously pleased. But um, yes, I mean, I think that um, he would have. Yeah, I'm sure he would have liked he would have liked that. Uh, he would have liked that uh, glory. Um yes, I think you know, did he was he ever jealous of Catherine? I'm not sure if he was jealous of her exactly. He was certainly quite intimidated by her at times.
0: And one another another queen, so to speak, um Lady Jane Grey. You wrote this book called The Sisters Who Would Be Queen about the Grey sisters, which by the way was I think my first introduction to your writing and it's one of my all-time favorite Tudor books. Thank and you it's nonfiction, but it really reads as fiction. And that's what I loved because it was easy. Sometimes nonfiction books can be kind of dull and hard to read, but you really made the story of the Grey Sisters quite interesting. What inspired you to write that book?
1: Well, the first book I wrote was on the death of uh, Elizabeth um, and the accession of King James. Um, And most people believe that you know, the the last of the Tudors, Elizabeth I dies, and then King James is her heir. And we've all been told that, you know, Mary, Queen of Scots used to be her heir, who was James's mother. And, you know, that's why she had her head chopped off. Um, And in fact, I discovered while I was researching this book that, uh, in in fact, under English law, uh, Elizabeth's heir was not Mary, Queen of Scots, or indeed King James. um, But, uh, these younger Grey sisters, uh, Lady Catherine and Lady Mary Grey, who were the young sisters of the famous Nine Days Queen, Lady Jane Grey. And I thought, well, that's a fascinating story. And uh, so I I looked up their, uh, the, um, you know, began to research their lives. And indeed, they had the most extraordinary and interesting lives. Um, and I didn't think at the time there'd be anything new to say about Jane because... I thought she was well-known, but as I started researching their lives, I discovered that, that, in fact, there were lots of new things to say about Jane, and lot, lots that had been written about Jane was untrue. Um, and so I wrote a book in the end about all three sisters, Jane, Catherine, and Mary Gray.
0: And one of the questions I think that comes up a lot in the Tudor world um, on social media is, why did Edward VI skip over Lady Jane Gray's mother, Frances Brandon, and his device for succession?
1: Well, I think that's a very good question, and he did ask Francis to come and see him while he was on his deathbed. Uh, we don't know what was said, but he presumably uh, gave her some good reasons for doing this. Um, I think, first of all, it's worth bearing in mind that Francis w- was, 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 under Henry VIII's will, um, the long-stop heir to, to Elizabeth, was to to, to Henry's daughter, Elizabeth Tudor, was um, Lady Jane Grey. It was never uh, Francis. Francis was overlooked under Henry's will. Um, And I think there are various reasons for this. I think actually the principal reason is that Henry wanted only very weak heirs to Edward. He didn't want Edward's reign threatened in any way. He was aware that Edward was going to inherit when he was only a child, that Henry would not live long enough for Edward to reach adulthood. Uh, and you have to remember that Henry VIII's uncles were the princes in the tower, the little boys who disappeared um, in the time of Richard III. And he did not want the same fate for his son. So he wanted to make sure that Edward didn't have any ad- adult heirs. Francis was an adult. She was married to an adult man, but therefore a threat. Um, so he overlooked her and went straight to this little girl, Jane, who was the same age as Edward, approximately the same age as Edward. Then uh, when Edward decides to write his will, I think he he follows um, his father's will, uh, which excludes uh, Francis. Uh, But also, he didn't really believe in female rule. He wanted a a male heir. And uh, Francis uh, hadn't had any children for a number of years and was very unlikely uh, at this stage in her life to produce a son. Um, Whereas Jane was young, just been married uh, to um, Guilford Dudley, the son of his Lord President, uh, and was much more likely to produce a son.
0: And then her sister Catherine, of course, had a couple of sons and she had the most tragic love story of all, if you ask me. It's very similar, I think, to her cousin, Queen Elizabeth, Oh to me is a tragic love story with Elizabeth and Robert Dudley. But do you think Robert Dudley actually loved her as a woman or what, did he only love her as a queen? What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think it is absolutely impossible to know. Um, I think he may well have loved her, um, but so difficult to separate um, love from ambition At that time, under those circumstances, Um, there's a there's a saying by a Greek philosopher called uh, Demosthenes, and he says that um, there's nothing easier than self-deceit, because what a man uh, what what a man wants to believe, he believes to be true. What is convenient for him to believe, he believes to be true. So 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 Robert Dudley may have. May have believed himself to be in love with Elizabeth because it was convenient for him to be in love with Elizabeth. I mean, he may not even have known himself where what his true feelings were. So I don't think one can. I don't think one can know. But I don't think he, he was completely cynical. I think they were too. Elizabeth was too intelligent, and they were very sort of natural together. When you when you read about them, they seem very natural together. The way she'd stroke his neck, and they would joke together. Um, And he knew her very well. And, of course, their relationship also went on for a very, very long time. And I don't think you could keep that up for that length of time if there wasn't a genuine connection.
0: Right. Because they had known each other since they were children, right?
1: Yes. They had known each other since they they were children. Um, But, of course, but they'd had a sort of relationship since, you know, from the 1550s until until his death in the 1580s. that's a long time.
0: It is, and I wonder if maybe Robert was one of the people that she trusted because of that, which made their relationship even stronger.
1: Yes, I think that's right. I think she did. I think she was cross with him sometimes. Um, there were there were there were certainly times when um, he um, did things that she didn't agree with or, or approve of, um, but she trusted him much as she trusted anyone. <laughs> um she trusted him to the extent that she didn't think that he would sort of plot her downfall. But I didn't think she would have trusted him completely, because you know he certainly did things behind her back that she didn't approve
0: of. Like marry her cousin.
1: Like <laughs> yes, no, well that was very bad. Yes. No, no absolutely he did that. But um, um also I think he may have encouraged Darnley to go to Scotland. Um, which um, in 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 the 1560s. Um, um, so he did political things as well that she you know, she she wouldn't have approved of. But yeah, no, marrying her cousin. Oh my God, no, that was
0: very bad.
1: But poor poor Robert Dudley, you know, he was desperate for an heir. I um, mean, you know, he he was desperate to have a son to carry on his line.
0: And you can't blame him for that at all. I mean, that was the name of the game back then.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. It really was the name of the game back then. So. Um, Yes, it, it, you know, he had, he had, it was a, it was a, sac- way he had actually stayed unmarried for as long as he did was in itself a great sacrifice, um, a genuine sacrifice, particularly after it became clear that she wasn't going to marry him.
0: And speaking of sons, so we jump forward in time to your most recent book, The White King, um, about Charles I, who was one of the sons of King James I of England. So, What inspired you to jump into Charles I's reign?
1: Well, one of my favorite books when I was a child were books by this um, historian called C.B. Wedgwood about uh, Charles I. It was just tremendously exciting. His reigns very, very exciting, full of interesting people and characters. Um, And, um, of course, um, as I I mentioned earlier, when I did a book on the death of Elizabeth, um, you know, I was looking forward to what... uh, Uh, came next. And much of the drama of the Tudor era finds its resolution during the reign of Charles I. And so it it kind of ties up the loose end, it ties up the story. Many of the uh, leading figures of Elizabeth's reign still appear. Their their children are very much important figures uh, during uh, Charles's reign. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that um, and I also felt there was a great opportunity to introduce people to the women of that era uh, because it's been you know people have written about Charles, they just write about you know sort of warty cromwellian puritans and and sort of flancing men in, in in lace top boots, and you don't really hear much about Charles's remarkable queen who's been much maligned, who's an incredible figure, who also sort of led armies during the civil war um, and the amazing kind of female spies who are involved, and um, all sorts of incredible characters, um, which I thought um, people would, you know, would enjoy um, discovering. Enjoy discovering, and actually, it's all very relevant now as well. I mean, in, in England, um, it's got very, it's got a lot of modern relevance because you know we've got all these tremendous arguments going on in Parliament around a Brexit and so forth, and uh, I think people are also interested in seeing some of the parliamentary drama of Charles's reign.
0: And sometimes I feel like um, in modern day now, the Tudor era gets the most attention because of all the drama. But I love that we have historians like yourself who are looking at these other time periods and showing us that it's just as interesting. There was just as much drama going on during this time as well.
1: Oh, my God. was you know absolutely there was some um, so uh, absolutely I mean it's an incredibly exciting and a uh, dramatic um story um and as I said it's, it's, it it is like it is like the, sort of the culmination of the Tudor drama um I mean the symbol uh, on the front of my book is 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 taken from a um a diplomatic passport um of the time and it entwines you know the the thistle of Scotland and the Stuarts and the Tudor Rose, and that's what it is. It's, it's the story, it's the, it's the Tudor story meets meets the Stuart story. It's when England becomes Britain, um, and, of course, you have um, the beginning of the uh, colonies of what becomes, becomes the United States.
0: I love it. And and just very much like Henry the being the second son, Charles was the second son. What happened to his brother? Tell us a little bit about his brother.
1: Yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right to pick up on the fact that Henry VIII also had an elder brother, because sometimes people say, oh, yeah, Charles, he was never ready to be king because he had an elder brother, which is complete nonsense. It's, you know, it's no truer than it was of Henry VIII, who he also had an elder brother who died. Um, his elder brother, uh, uh, Charles' elder brother, was called Henry, in fact, indeed, after Henry VIII. Um and um, he died of TB when he was uh, 18. Um, Charles was 11, and you know was with him at his deathbed, holding his hand uh, while uh, doctors were trying to cure him uh, by tying uh, dead pigeons to his head, which you'll be unsurprised to learn wasn't very successful.
0: <laughs> I can't imagine why that didn't work. <laughs>
1: Oh, I know. Can you imagine not only to sort of die horribly of uh, TB, but to die also looking ridiculous with a pigeon tied to your head?
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, so but, but Charles himself had some health issues when he was a child, too, right?
1: Yes, he did. Um, and there's a lot of uh, untruths written about it. I think he may have had tongue tie, which sort of stops you from uh, you know, being able to um, suckle easily. So um, he was small as a baby um, and had uh, weak legs uh, um, and his sort of lingual deformity meant he had a sort of mild stutter. Um, but uh, he was extremely uh, determined and he became and he trained himself through sort of running uh, and walking and riding to become an extremely fit and athletic young man who was um, uh, a, a, an expert horseman. Uh, who you know, walked so fast that his courtiers would sort of run to keep up with him. He was very, very energetic. Um, he had a stutter, um, but it was quite a mild stutter. His exact contemporary, Louis XIII of France, had a, a really appalling stutter, um, but, um, which nobody ever hears about, but he did. But um, Charles uh, taught himself with uh, singing lessons, the help of singing lessons, um, to be able to speak clearly. Um, although he didn't like giving long, garrulous speeches like his father had, um, I think much to everyone's great relief. So um, I think that often it's used, it's used against him. It's like he's sort of physically weak. He must be a weak king, a weak man. Um, we use this kind of shorthand still in a rather shocking way of physical disability being a kind of mark of human weakness. Um, so if you saw a film like Wonder Woman, uh, you would notice that Wonder Woman is a very beautiful, perfect physical specimen, uh, while her enemy, Dr. Poison, is scarred. Um, and this comes from some very ancient sort of beliefs in, in disability and disfigurement being uh, reflections of sin. And it is weird that we still use this same shorthand and, and really quite shocking. Um, and um, it's no more true than if you or I had a scar on our face that we make, that would make us a bad person. It's no more true that because Charles had weak legs as a child, that it made him a weak man.
0: Hmm. What, what kind of relationship did he have with his father?
1: Yes, that's very interesting, again, because um, he, th- he got on very well with his mother. Unlike, unlike James, Charles liked women and got on well with women. Um, and he enjoyed joking with it and having a good, good time with his mother. Um, he was quite, I think, intimidated by his father. Uh, his father, King James, was a very remarkable man very highly educated, brilliant intellectual, um, and um, had been a king of Scotland, which was a very violent country since he was a baby. So he was a very sort of confident king. Um, And I think it could be quite intimidating. Um, Charles looked up to his father and didn't approve of everything his father did. I mean, when, when, he, when, when Charles became king, he changed things. So, I mean, James drank like a fish and was quite, you know, a bit of a drunk. Um, and uh, so Charles sort of tied it up the court. He didn't approve of, you know, heavy drinking and, um, and, and general sort of bad behavior and corruption. Um, but he did very much look up to his father's writings. And his father was a great expert on theology, taught uh, Charles that the Church of England was the best in the world, which Charles firmly believed. Uh, encouraged Charles's belief in a divine right kingship, which is a concept that James had developed. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he looked up to his father.
0: When um, Queen Elizabeth died and James came to England, he left Charles behind in Scotland, didn't he, for a while?
1: Yes. Charles was only a baby um, and was, as I said, a sickly baby. And so he stayed behind for a year. Uh, before he followed um, his parents and siblings um, south, um, and his father, in fact, I remember sent up doctors, you know, highly paid doctors to, to sort of bring him down. I mean, you know, they all, it was perfectly you know, possible that um, Charles would, you know, die, um, as, as small children often did. But you know, he proved resilient.
0: I often wonder too, because they had a sister, um, Elizabeth, correct. Yes, he did. Absolutely. The winter
1: queen of Bohemia, who uh, married when she was 16 uh, and uh, and went off to Germany.
0: It, it makes me wonder if, you know, Henry died at 18. Charles was sickly. If both of them had died, it really makes me wonder what kind of Queen Elizabeth would have been.
1: Yes. No, absolutely. Um, if indeed she had become queen. Um and- I mean, would she have been accepted? Uh, I mean, possibly she would have been. Um, but, there, but there was still, you know, Catherine Grey's heirs were still very much alive and kicking and around. Um, so it was not impossible that Elizabeth was you know, on the other side of the channel with her husband. It was not impossible that there might have been a, a fight for the throne. Um, Elizabeth might not just have been accepted. Um, she might not have become queen at all. I mean, it it, it may it may have been uh, William Seymour,
0: Earl of Hartford, instead. That's a great point. I didn't even think of that. It could have been the, the Seymours on the throne. I love that idea too. <laughs> Absolutely,
1: It Could very easily have been. I mean, they were still. I mean, he was still. They were still ambitious. Um, I mean, in 1625, um, when, yeah, but, yes, even before, I think 1624 it was a year. Before Charles became king, um, they um, were um, They were looking to make sure that they could prove that Catherine Gray's marriage uh, was um, to, 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 to um, Edward Seymour, Earl of Hartford, in the 16th century, was valid, and that therefore they were legitimate and had a rightful claim to the throne. They would, and they were doing that in 1624, 1625, even when Charles was king, um, William Seymour was um, rebuilding this, uh, was building this incredible tomb at Salisbury Cathedral uh, with the monuments to his grandmother, Cat- Lady Catherine Grey uh, and her husband. Um, again, sort of a reminder of who they were. That She was a royal princess. Oh, yeah, they were still still They were still definitely ambitious at the time
0: seems like there's always plots, you know, yeah. behind all the scenes, no matter who the monarch was, there's always a plot to put somebody else on the throne. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And of course, again, the Seymour name, you know, this goes back to the reign of uh, Edward VI Sixth, you were talking about earlier. I mean, you know, this guy's def- descended from the protector Somerset, Edward's uncle, who ruled, you know, England after the death of Henry the VIII. Um, so um that- that's what I mean about actually Charles's life. You know, it is, it isn't Elizabeth's death doesn't really end the Tudor story. Um, These, these people are still, are still, are still around. And the the drama really does continue. I think it defines some kind of resolution really when Charles's head is cut off at the end of the civil war.
0: The drama, I really feel like that's what intrigues the people who end up finding a passion um, for English royal history in general is the drama that is surrounded by the throne. It's, it's, it's like a modern day soap opera, you know, what we call a soap opera in the U S is you just never know what's going to happen, who's scheming behind the scenes and who's going to come out ahead. And that's what makes it so fun to learn about.
1: Yes. And also, and I think what's exactly. And it's, and these, and they're, and these are p- human beings. I think that's, I think that's the important thing as a writer not to lose sight of these are all, all people that are- human beings who, you know, have feelings uh, like we do, uh, but they are, so they're ordinary human beings like the rest of us placed in extraordinary circumstances. And that's always fascinating.
0: What do you wish everyone knew about Charles I?
1: I would wish that everyone knew about Charles I. I would say that he was a man of great courage and principle, um, which I think would surprise a lot of people, um, that he was a good man, although not a good king. Interesting.
0: Well, I want everybody to go out and buy your book, of course, so that they can learn more about him. Um, but before we get to that and the details on how to, to get the book, um, I want to pose the fun question that I ask all of my guests, and um, I'd love to hear your answer. If I were to give you a time machine, what time in history would you visit?
1: Gosh, well, that's a very interesting question. It's difficult, isn't it? Because I hope I wouldn't be there too long. Because, you know, if you go back, if you go back very far, there are no antibiotics, for starters. Um, (laughs) um, But I would be fascinated to go back to the, say, the 1520s. So during the reign of Henry VIII, before the Reformation, just before the Reformation, before the destruction began, because after that, after the 1530s, between the 1530s and the 1640s, over 90 percent of English art, English religious art in particular, was destroyed. 90 percent. And also. Um, just as much music, music, will never music will never know what it sounded like because so many original manuscripts were destroyed after the Reformation. So I'd love to go back and see the art that we lost because we just don't know what most English art looked like um, and we don't know what music was written. Uh, um, And uh, to hear that music and see that art, I think um, that that, that would be fascinating.
0: The music that remains from that time period that I hear is so soothing and relaxing to me. It's one of the things, like, when I'm doing research, I like to just put on a pair of headphones and listen to lute music because I think it's just, there's something so beautiful about it.
1: Yes, no, absolutely. There's some lovely, there is some lovely surviving music from this period. Um, And um, it's sort of mind-boggling to think what might have been lost. Can you imagine if sort of all Mozart's music was sort of destroyed and we'd never heard
0: it? Yeah, that would be insane. well, can...
1: how many Mozart's might have you know we 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 will never know lived and died and had wonderful music that people heard that we will never hear because the manuscripts are all destroyed.
0: I've never thought of it that way before. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. <laughs> um, a, a fellow tutor page on Facebook, um, it's called the Tutor Prince. Prince um, posed a question this week that I absolutely loved, and I had to share with my followers as well that I want to ask you. So, if you were to host a dinner party during the Tudor era, what four people would you invite to it, and why? Gosh,
1: um, if I was so Tudor, four Tudor people coming to dinner, hmm. it'd be quite tempting to have Henry VIII and three of his wives. Wouldn't it? <laughs> that would make us a lot of some blood-curdling scenes. That could be. Um, I don't know. That'd be quite, I think that could be quite fun. And maybe we could get all the wives to turn on Henry VIII. We could have Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour. And, um, Ooh, who should we have as, who should we have as the, uh, I think it would have to be, I think it would have to be, um, Catherine Parr, poor old Catherine Howard. No, I think I'd have Catherine Parr. Um, I think that could, I think that could be quite fun. We could, uh, they could all, um, they could all, they could all, Tell him a few things. Tell him a few
0: home truths. I, I'm seeing like a talk show play out with, with the three wives and Henry and food being thrown and <laughs> words yes. flying.
1: Must be three wives. It has to be three wives. And gosh, which three would one choose? Catherine and Anne and oh Gosh, they, they would quarrel to the death. Um, Catherine Anne and Catherine. Yeah, I think Catherine Aragón, Catherine Parr, and Anne Boleyn would be the would be the three wives I would choose because I think. They would, they would, uh, they'd be the best at standing up for themselves with Henry.
0: I think so too. Anne of Cleves, um, as much as I adore her, I feel like she wouldn't add much to the party.
1: No, she was, is she very interesting. Anne of and, it's, and I'm saying so, it's, so, it's so good that that more interest is now focused on Anne of Cleves, who of course you know, lived the longest, lived right into the reign of uh, Mary um, Tudor, and um, had a magnificent funeral during the reign of um, uh, Mary Tudor. Um, so, um, yes, no, I, I, I suspect she, 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 she might, although you just don't know, of course, maybe now that they're all dead and the one will be reborn, who knows an, an entirely different side of her character
0: might come out. That's quite possible. I just recently read Heather R. Darcy's book on a Duchess of Cleves, and it's a fascinating take on her life from the German perspective. And it really it is an eye opener. Um against everything that we've ever learned about Anne of Cleves and some some new findings with records and I think it's really helped the resurgence of Anne of Cleves popularity and I, I love to see it because I feel like Anne Boleyn has had center stage for so long that it's nice to see another wife take that stage.
1: Yes no I agree and, and also there's been this ridiculous uh, slander re- endlessly repeated that uh, you you know, she was ugly and a sort of Flanders mare. Uh um when um nothing I mean which was which is just a sort of quote invented by a Victorian writer called Agnes Strickland. Um uh I and mean, at the time, you know, she was considered just as attractive as Catherine Howard, I mean but just not by Henry, um, which is a different matter. And then it's sort of interesting to see why Henry perceived her, particularly in the way he did, um, rather than that I didn't do you remember that drama. Um was it called Tudor or Tudors? Do you, the Tudor, the Tudors, do you remember yes, The Tudors, yes Yes. Um, I loved watching. I watched that with one of my sons. It was such fun. Um, but anyway, one of the things I really enjoyed about the Tudors was it had a really beautiful Anne of Cleves. I don't know if you remember, but she was lovely. And I thought, yes, good for you. Good. You've got a beautiful Anne of Cleves.
0: Yeah, she was a famous singer too. And for some reason her name is escaping my mind, the actress who played her.
1: Very beautiful woman, I remember.
0: She was. It was very nice to be able to see that played out in a different way. So, something else that um, people may not know about you, or I hope they do, is that you have a podcast as well called Ten Minute Tutors.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, and I bring it out monthly, and it's it's quite short. So it's I say ten minutes. I mean I, I don't know. I don't do it exactly. So sometimes it's eight minutes, and sometimes it's twelve minutes, or whatever. Um, you can't don't set, but you're watched by it. Is all I would say. Um, and what I do is I sort of look at different myths or unusual stories that people may not know. So one, in one, for example, I discuss why um, Anne Boleyn had her head chopped off with a sword, not with an axe. And it's not the reason which is usually given. I, it's not because she was brought up in France. Um, and this month um, I'm doing um, the story of the um, Essex ring, um, I don't know if you can hear this dog snoring in the background. I do hope not. But anyway, I apologize <laughs> to your listeners if you can hear a dog snoring in the background. I have a very small dog beside me snoring rather loudly. Um, anyway, um, about the story of the Essex ring, which is this ring that um, Elizabeth I is supposed to have given her last favorite, uh, the Earl of Essex. And he betrays her at the end of her life uh, and tries to raise the court against her. Um, and. Uh, Um, It's said that he tries to send her this ring um, after he's captured and put in the tower uh, and is due to be executed to ask for mercy. Uh, But somebody steals the ring and so she never gets it and so he is executed. Uh, And then her cousin, when her cousin is dying, um, which is actually not long before Elizabeth herself dies, she says that she had taken this ring and she apologizes to Elizabeth. Uh, And um, Elizabeth supposedly shakes this woman in her bed and says, you know, God may forgive you, but I never can. Anyway, the interesting thing is this ring actually exists and is currently in the museum in Westminster Abbey. Uh, But I tell this month's podcast the true story of the ring, which is actually more interesting than the legend. Um, And um, so people might enjoy that. It's only 10 minutes.
0: I love your podcast. I'm a subscriber and I love when new episodes come out and I implore everyone to subscribe to it. I follow it on Apple podcasts, but I'm sure it can be found in other places as well. Thank you. It's on SoundCloud. I don't know what else it's on. Uh, what else? Um, there, you have so many other things going on. You have books and of course you have a Facebook page and you have Twitter and all that. How can everybody find you and your work?
1: Um, I have a website website. Um, LeanderDelisle.com. Um, I know my name is a nightmare and um, impossible to spell. It's L-E-A-N-D-A-D-E-L-I-S-L-E. Um, at, um, and um, so I have um, a website which has uh, all my books and also my podcast um, and I think links to some YouTube films. There's a YouTube lecture on Jane Grey called, I think, called England's Forgotten Queen, and there's another one on Charles called Downfall, um, uh, and it's got some links to all those things as well, I think.
0: Wonderful, and I will include the links to everything so that people okay. can find your work too. Thank you very much. Yes, and thank you, Leander, so much for being on the show today. It was a great pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, that's quite all right. Um, I very much enjoyed it. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at tutorsdynastypodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, Podbean, or anywhere you can find podcasts. Intro and outro music called Folk Round by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Creative Commons license via filmmusic.io. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at tutorsdynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.